Uh, Would you please turn with me to your study outlines, and as you turn, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online, uh, as well as our friends at First Baptist Church in Arco, Idaho, and also our friends at Purpose Church in Kalispell, Montana. We are so glad uh, that you're joining us today for our study of God's Word. Now, we are in for a crazy ride for the next two months. Get get, get buckled in. It's going to be crazy as we study the book of Judges. Uh, I believe that God has a purpose for each of the 66 books of the Bible. They meet different needs in just a wonderful way. For example, the book of Job was written for those who are suffering. And the books of Lamentations and Psalms are written to those that are discouraged or depressed. Uh, The book of Proverbs was given for those who need wisdom. And I believe the book of Judges is in the Bible to help 12-year-old boys fall in love with the Bible. That's, That's why I believe it's in there. When I first read the book of Judges at the age of 12, I was like, this is awesome. Are you kidding me? This, this stuff is in the Bible? I, I just was blown away. And I, I mean, this is really terrible. Help me fall in love with the Bible. The book of Judges, it's there for junior high boys. Uh, if the book of Ruth is a chick flick, then Judges is a guy movie, all right? So the book of Ruth is a chick flick. Uh, Judges is a movie for guys. Uh, it's, for movie for, it's a book for everybody. There are tremendous spiritual lessons in the book of Judges. Yes, it's b- bizarre. Yeah, it's strange. Yeah, it's a little bit out there. But I'm telling you, in this book are some of the most profound spiritual lessons that will help you in your walk with God. And so in order to help you with that, as Joanne just said on the video announcement, we have made up a booklet. Pastor Greg and Chanel and his team, have put, Adrian, have put together this, this booklet, uh, the study guide that goes with the sermon series. And so this series is going to be going through the first Sunday in, uh, in December. And we, we, need, we decided to move it back a week because we didn't think we should be doing the last part of Judges. When you get to the last part of Judges, you know we're not going to be doing that on Christmas Eve, okay? Uh, The last couple of chapters of Judges, there's no way we're doing that too close to Christmas. So this is going to go through the first Sunday in December, and this study guide will help you in your personal study as I preach here on Sunday mornings, and then also I would encourage you to get get involved in a life group that is also going through the book of Judges. And so if you're not currently in a life group, this is a great time. Jump in for just eight weeks, just eight or nine weeks. Just make a short-term commitment to it for the fall. And again, at the Connect Center, you can find out how to get involved in a group, and you'll get more specific information. If you look on the back of your study outline in the gray background there, uh, you'll find that information there and would really encourage you to do all three. That's when you really grow. That's when a, a part of the Bible can really change you when you're getting it three different ways. You're getting it weekly here on Sunday morning. You're getting it weekly in your small group. And then daily, you're studying it along with the study guide. That's when you, when you get it at three levels, that's when it can really get inside of you and uh, help, help to change your life. Now today, we're going to talk about spiritual inconsistency as it's kind of an introductory message uh, with the first two chapters of the book of Judges. Uh, spiritual inconsistency. Why are we so up and down in our walk with God? Have you ever wondered that? I mean, uh, some people have called it being spiritually bipolar. I mean, we're on fire for Jesus one week, and then we cool off the next week. We're full of faith one day, and then we're full of doubt the next. We defeat temptation one day, and then we're defeated by temptation uh, the next day. And nothing illustrates this better than the book of Judges. Here's, here's kind of a little chart that shows how, that, how the pattern that we see in Judges. Uh, five S's here. First of all, the people sin. They sin against God, and so sin leads to servitude. 
eventually, because they sin against God, they get enslaved by the nations around them. And so then supplication, they cry out to God, oh God, help us. And so God sends salvation in the form of a judge. Uh, the salvation comes, they throw off their, the people that are putting them in slavery. And then there's a period of, of peace and quiet and silence for a while. And then the pattern starts all over again. You know how it is? You're in a bad time in your life. You cry out to God. He rescues you. And then when things get easy, we slip back into sin and disobedience. We run into trouble. We bring trouble back in ourselves. And we see this same cycle in our lives as well. Now what you're going to see in Judges is that the cycle continues to spiral downward. And things are going to get worse and worse. Each time they go through the cycle, they end up at a little lower spot. And so the end of the book of Judges, they're in way worse shape. It actually ends with the verse, everyone did as they saw fit in their own eyes. By the end of the book, everybody's just completely doing uh, their own thing. Let me give you another map that just kind of illustrates this a little bit, uh, the, the 12 different judges that are talked about. Uh, and by the way, I should probably define a judge. Uh, a judge is not like a, a legal judge in a courtroom like we think of when we think of judge. Uh, a judge is, is more like a ruler, almost like a military ruler, and they only ruled over the tribe that gave them authority. So if you use an analogy like this, uh, Moses was like president of the whole nation of Israel. His successor, Joshua, was president of the whole uh, nation of Israel. But then Joshua doesn't find a successor, or, or for some reason God doesn't call him to have a successor like Moses was called to have Joshua as his successor. And things went well because of that. But then after Joshua, there was no set up successor, and so everybody kind of went in their own direction. And each tribe had their own judge uh, that would have authority just over that particular tribe, or sometimes they would connect with each other to go into battle together, but that was about it. So when you think judge, think of kind of a military governor. That's what it would be like, like a military governor over a tribe, rather than like a president over the whole uh, nation of, of Israel. So here are the 12 uh, judges, and ho hopefully this is going to be like fine water. Waldo. I got to remember where all these guys are. There's Othniel right there, and he would fight against the Arameans. And then number two, you can probably see him even before I do. There's Ehud. I'm going to talk about him next Sunday. And he fought against the Moabites. By the way, this is the Dead Sea, and up here is the Sea of Galilee. Uh, then number three, where Shamgar fought against the Philistines. Then we go number four, Deborah and Barak. We'll talk about that in a couple of Sundays. I'll, I'll be speaking on that. Uh, fighting against the Canaanites. Then Gideon also against the Canaanites. Atola, number seven, Jair. Then Jephthah, number eight. Uh, he was against the Ammonites. Number nine is Ibzan. And then number 10, you, oh, right there, Elon. Uh, and then number 11 is Abdon. And then we'll end up with Samson, and he's fighting against the Philistines right there. So that you'll see these enemies of Israel are all around Israel attacking them from different directions. And in these different tribes, they have leaders that defend them against being enslaved uh, by those enemies. Now, before we completely dig in, I just want to deal with a tough question. We're just going to, we're just going to deal with it head on right off the bat uh, as we kind of introduce the book of Judges. And that tough question is, what about the violence in the Old Testament? Now, I did a full sermon on this called The Problem of Old Testament Warfare. And if this really troubles you, I'm going to give you the four-minute version right now, but if you want the 40-minute version, uh, on our website, when this sermon is up on our website, with it on our website is going to be the sermon I did a few years ago called The Problem of Old Testament Warfare. 
And then, of course, there are books written on this subject. And frankly, we're never going to have a clear, easy answer until we talk to Jesus face-to-face and and he shows us what was going on there uh, behind the scenes. But if you want a fuller explanation of what I'm going to give you right now, uh, check that out. That other sermon is going to be with this sermon on our website. Now, violence, uh, sometimes God used an army like the army of Israel to bring about judgment in the Old Testament. Now, he does not do that in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus commanded us to love our enemies, and he never condoned violence uh, to force a person to follow him. Our job, our role now is to dispense mercy. Uh, But someday, Jesus will bring judgment. But in the Old Testament, he would use uh, a literal thing like an army of Israel to bring about judgment, to bring about justice. He will, he himself, we leave it up to him, ultimate judgment today, and our job in following him is to dispense mercy. Now in Judges chapter 1, verse 1, it says, After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, Who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites? Verse 2. The Lord answered, Judah shall go up, I have given the land into their hands. Now one little sidebar. The tribe of Judah stays somewhat faithful, even during this awful period of the judges. They kind of stay faithful. Uh, The one that does the worst is the tribe of Benjamin. Now they start off well, as I'm going to be teaching on Ehud next Sunday. Uh, They they start out well, but by the end of the book of Judges, uh, Benjamin is just a mess, just a mess. But Judah stays somewhat faithful during the period of the judges. Okay, let's go on to the next verse. The men of Judah then said to the Simeonites, see how sometimes the, the, the tribes would ally with each other. Their fellow Israelites, come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We in turn will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands And they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek, verse 5. It was there that they found Adonai Bezek. Adonai in the the Hebrew simply means king. So they they captured the king of Bezek and fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and the Perizzites, verse 6. Adonai Bezek fled, but they chased him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Now, the 12-year-old boy within me leapt with excitement. Finally, something interesting. You get through Leviticus. Are you kidding me? Numbers in Deuteronomy, not much better. Joshua, better. Judges, awesome. All right. Now, to adults, though, this is not so pleasant, uh, this whole uh, thing that they cut it off. Now, there is is a reason uh, for this. It seems brutal to us, uh, but this had a practical thing to it. They wouldn't kill the king. But if you cut out the kings back then, they weren't like military leaders that, that led from behind. Okay, they didn't give the orders and then sit way back. A king of that time led his troops into battle. So if you cut off his thumb, he couldn't hold a sword. And if you cut off his big toe, he couldn't be stable on the battlefield. And so essentially it would keep him from leading anyone into battle against the nation of Israel ever again. So it prevented him from leading troops into battle ever again. Now, notice what Adonai Bezek says. Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. He had done this to 70 other people. And they were disabled on the floor around his feasting hall table, living off the scraps that would come off of his table. 
Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. God used the nation of Israel to bring judgment on this tyrant to do to him what he had done to them. They brought him to Jerusalem and, and he uh, died there. Now, when you think Canaan, don't think Switzerland, okay? Don't think people in Lederhosen going around with their sheep and their little lambs in their hands and the big bad Israelites come in and slaughter them. Don't, don't think Switzerland. Think Nazi Germany, all right? Think that. This was an utterly decadent culture, utterly decadent. They were consumed with the occult and with Satan worship. They were sacrificing children to their demon idols, that's what they were doing. Child sacrifice was very much a part of their culture and a part of their religion. Terrible injustice to the poor and the weak with great cruelty. And even with that, the Bible says that God waited four generations giving them a chance to repent. One, two, three, four. God said, I'm waiting for them to repent. I'm waiting for them to repent. But finally he had waited long enough and he brings the nation of Israel in to bring judgment on them. Now, the best analogy... Uh, would be allied troops of World War II conquering the Nazis in order to stop their atrocities like the Holocaust. Okay? Now, I know it's very popular nowadays. If anybody disagrees with you with any little political thing, you call them a Nazi. I mean, that's just what we do now. People can disagree on just very minor things, and, and they'll, they'll call, we'll call them a Nazi, or they'll call us uh, a Nazi. And so we've used the term so much it's kind of lost its power. But I'm telling you, the Canaanites weren't just the Nazis of their time. They were way worse than it. I mean, Nazis were school choir boys compared uh, to the, the Canaanites. So let's use this analogy this way. This is, I think, a helpful analogy. Um, it, it, it's like the Allied troops come in and conquer Nazi Germany and stop the gas chambers and free the people in the, in the concentration camps. But in the book of Judges, what we find is, let's imagine that the Allied troops said, okay, we've done enough. And they still leave the Nazis in charge in countries like Poland. And say, okay, we've conquered the main one, Germany. That's what Joshua did, okay. But then after Joshua, they were supposed to go on to the other countries, okay, like Poland. But they said, you know what, we're just too tired. We're just not going to do it. And so the gas chambers like Auschwitz continue to function in Poland. Now, to take the illustration even a step further, because they didn't completely crush the Nazis, the Canaanites, it began to reinfect them. And so now imagine the Allied troops uh, conquering Germany, but now Nazism creeps back from Poland, where it had not been eliminated, back into the Allied troops, and they begin to do the exact same things that the Nazis did that they had conquered. That is precisely what's going on here in, in the book of Judges. As they come in, they conquer it, but they don't conquer all of it, and it begins to reinfect them with idol worship uh, once again to the point where Israel began to sacrifice children later on in their history and do the terrible things of the country that they himself had been sent to, to, to conquer. Uh, J.D. Greer is just a phenomenal young pastor um, uh, from North Carolina, not quite as good as Virginia, but it's right next to it. It borders Virginia, so almost as good. And he's the one that's going to be in the video teaching that we're going to have in our small groups. And he is just phenomenal. You're going to have such a great time uh, with those in, in your small groups. Here's something additional that he says about this that I thought was just great. Maybe you say, okay, about the things I just said like, but surely in these conquests there were innocent people affected. I mean, like kids, it is true, innocent people sometimes get caught up in judgment. 
That's not just something that happens in Judges. It happens today as well. If a man cheats on his wife and cheats in his business, and so he loses his marriage and his job, you might look at him and say, well, he brought it on himself. Well, what about his kids? They suffer too. And the suffering they endure because of the sins of their father, they had no part in. There are multiple ways that the Bible answers the question of why God allows the innocent to be caught up in someone else's justice. But one thing it assures you is that before the throne of God, everyone receives full, complete, and perfect justice. And that what we inherit in eternity will make anything we experience on earth seem rather trivial. Think of it like this. Say that the U.S. Post Office overcharged you 48 cents on a stamp. And so you went to complain. And they said, okay, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to release you from any further obligation to pay income taxes for the rest of your life. You would probably say, on the whole, that you did pretty well in your engagement with the post office. While you may have complained at the time that they overcharged you for a stamp, when it is all said and done, you're not going to spend a lot of time complaining that you were treated unfairly by the U.S. government. When someone suffers or dies unfairly in judgment, we can rest assured that before the throne of God, they will receive perfect justice. And what they inherit in eternity makes up for anything that they suffer on earth. You know, there's a verse that I use at, at funerals many times, particularly when it's a young person's uh, funeral. And it's Isaiah 57, verses 1 and 2, and it's, it's such a poignant uh, and, and powerful verse. The righteous perish... And no one takes it to heart. The devout are taken away and no one understands that the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. Sometimes, you know, we've heard the thing, only the good die young. Remember that? That was in some song. I can't remember what the song was. You can tell me before I get to the 11-11 service. Only the good die young. Well, when the good do, and that's not true, but when the good do die young, the Bible says that God has, has mercifully snatched them from all the heartache that they were going to experience for the rest of their lives. And one minute in heaven is going to make up for anything we went through in this life. They've been spared from evil. Verse, verse 2, uh, those who walk uprightly enter into peace. They find rest as they lie in death. Now, that is just a short version uh, of, of a very complicated and difficult subject. But the, the fuller version, okay, the 40-minute version is on our website with that other sermon that I did. And, of course, there are other resources you can get a hold of that give even way more extensive answer uh, than these short ones might do. Let's get back to our story. So they, they begin to make excuses as to why they didn't conquer all the land. So back again to my illustration. Think the Allied armies of World War II uh, they, they conquer uh, Nazi Germany, but then they kind of leave Poland to, to go on. And they begin to make excuses as to why they're not doing it. Uh, let's look at some of the excuses. Verse 19, the Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. Now, you know how it is through history. Whoever technologically develops the next uh, category of, of sophisticated weaponry, they win battles until everybody does the same thing. So, for example, the first ones that thought to fight uh, riding horses, they won all their battles until everybody started riding horses to fight battle. The first one that came up with the crossbow won all the battles until everybody got crossbows. 
uh, the first nation that has nuclear weapons, okay? United States uh, won battles or a war until other people began to get nuclear weapons as well. And so the Philistines, the, 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 the people on the coastlands right next to the Mediterranean Sea, they were the first in history to begin to work with iron extensively during the Iron Age. And they developed chariots fitted with iron. And these are like the tanks of their time. Imagine somebody has tanks and nobody else has tanks. Your infantry would not do well against that army. And so they say, they say, oh, you know what? We, we, we can't do that. God, we can't conquer the rest of it because they have this technological advantage. Let's look at the other excuses. Uh, chapter 1, verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan or Tanakh or Dor or Iblim or Megiddo and their surrounding settlements for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. So God said, why haven't you done it? And they said, well, God, they don't want to leave. You know, they're like, they're determined. God says, well, I told you to, to drive them out. Okay. Yeah, but they don't want to go. Uh, we'll see how God feels about that in, in just a moment, okay? Uh, it goes on to the next verse, verse 29. 29. Um, when Israel became strong... They pressed the Canaanites into forced labor. They said, okay, well, here's a compromise. We're not going to drive them out, but we'll keep them around and we'll get some free labor out of it. But they never drove them out completely. So now back to my analogy, and forgive me if you're not a history person. You're like, Glenn, you're annoying me to no end. But uh, uh, if you're a history person, you're like, that is awesome. That's just like perfect. I get it totally. Okay, But imagine that the Allied troops take over, but they allow the Nazis to continue to coexist among them. They compromise and say, you know what, it's too hard to break the Nazi regime, so let's just let the Nazis live among us or let them be in different pockets. And it begins to reinfect the nation of Israel that these Canaanites are still tempting them back into worshiping their idols, which is going to get them into great trouble. Now, what's God's assessment of all this? How does God feel about these excuses? Uh, Judges 2, verses 1 through 3. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Verse 2. And you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land. But you shall break down their altars. These altars are where they sacrifice children to their gods. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Verse 3. And I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. Okay, if you are unwilling to call out to me and to get my help to do this, I'm not going to do it for you. You have to decide you want to get rid of this. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares to you. Here's what God asked the Israelites, and he's asking you and me today as well. Is it that you can't do it, or you won't do it? That's what he's asking them. And he's asking us the same way. When we leave, see, the pockets of the Canaanites in the nation of Israel are like pockets of disobedience that I leave in my life. And when I leave little areas of compromise, little areas of disobedience, I'm not talking about when we fight against a certain temptation for our whole lives and we're in there and sometimes we win, sometimes we lose. But I'm talking about some areas we just accommodate. You know what, it's too hard to struggle anymore, so let's just make a compromise. And God says those little areas, those pockets of disobedience in our hearts and in our walk with Jesus become traps and snares 
to us. Uh, small areas of disobedience. I like that. You got it. Thank you, Donald. You woke me up right there. That was really good. Small areas. Okay, let's, let's do it all. Donald's got us in. Everybody say preach it on the count of three. Ready? One, two, three. Preach it. Oh, there you go. Now that's what we're talking about. Small areas of disbelief produce large areas of disaster. Now, I hesitated. Let's go back to that title for just a second. I actually regretted that. I wish I'd put small areas of disobedience, but it's okay. Let me just do a word of explanation. I didn't want you to think theological disbelief because I believe we're going to struggle with doubt until we see Jesus face to face, okay? And, and, and God is merciful to that. I love the story of the dad who wanted his son healed by Jesus, and Jesus says, yeah, I'll heal him if you believe. And do you remember what the dad said? He said, Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. And you know what Jesus did? He healed his son. And I love that. We, so, so I don't want you to think that we have to have perfect belief all the time. This is not theological disbelief. This is practical disbelief, all right? This is where we don't have enough faith to ask God to help us to obey him totally without compromise. This is where we don't say, Lord, would you help me to conquer this area within my life? And it leads to disaster if we don't deal with it. Judges 2, verses 12 through 14. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger. Verse 13. In his anger against Israel, the Lord, uh, because they, I'm sorry, because they, go back to that one, I made a mistake. Because they forsook him and served Baal and the asterisks. Verse 14. Uh, in Verse 14, I'm sorry, go ahead. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders. Now, how many Raiders fans do we have uh, here today? Okay. okay. Do you know your team's name is in the Bible? Now, it's not talked about favorably, I want you to know. But something tells me you Raiders fans will like that. That's what you tell you. You're like, yeah, Raiders. Who plundered them. Yeah, now we're talking. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around them whom they were no longer able to resist. Now, we choose between the God who saves and gods that enslave. We choose between the God who saves and gods that enslave. Now, here's the definition of an idol. An idol is anything in our lives that promises power and freedom without God. Okay? Anything in our life that promises power and freedom without God. Take our stuff, for example. Okay, stuff that we try to possess, material possessions. Our stuff, owning stuff, says I can give you power and freedom. But does it or does it enslave us? I mean, our stuff, do you ever have enough stuff? You never have enough. And I'm jealous of the stuff other people have that's cooler than my stuff. Or I lay awake at night constantly worried about is my stuff going to break? Is my stuff going to get stolen? How am I going to make the payments to pay for my stuff? And after a while, we become a slave to our stuff. Now, last Sunday, I drove a car here to church that I've driven for years. It had 175,000 miles on it. And I was totally relaxed driving that car. If the kids spell anything on the interior, whatever. If somebody scratches it on the outside, if somebody puts a dent in it, who cares? If something breaks on it, get in line, all right? 
Everything's broken on it. I would wash it once every two to three months, whether it needed it or not. You know, just, just didn't care. I was a free man. On Monday, Kimberly and I sold that car to a friend of ours. And then we bought a car that has only 25,000 miles on it. And it's like new, I'm telling you. It even smells new. I mean, it's just so beautiful. And it has become a tyrant. This past week, kids bring something into the car. Watch out for that. Don't spill that on there. I've been driving it gently all week long, not wanting any scratch on it. Uh, when, the, when the rain came the other night and it got pollen from our trees in our yard on the car, I raced to the car wash and got it cleaned as possibly as soon as I could. If something broke on it, I was totally freaking out. This is supposed to be practically new. Why? How is something broken on it already? I mean, a, a bird dropped something from the sky on it. And I'm like, you bird, if I were in Virginia, I'd shoot you right now. You know, you bird. Last Sunday, I owned a car. This morning, my car owns me. And that's the way it is. Our, our, uh, any idol, anything that promises power and freedom without God is eventually going to enslave us. Now, that, compare that to the God who saves. Judges 2, verse 15. Um, whenever Israel went out to fight... The hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Now, they had brought it on themselves, but now they're in great distress. And you know the wonderful thing about our God is his heart goes out to us. When your kids get in trouble and they brought the trouble on themselves, is that any different than trouble they just stumbled into? No, as a parent, as a grandparent, you're, you see their great distress and you do something about it. Verse 16, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Now, here's the problem when you read the book of Judges. These saviors, oh, are they a hot mess. Oh, my goodness. These judges are broken people themselves. J.D. Greer calls them broken saviors. How can these men and women be Israel's saviors when they themselves need to be saved? I mean, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna get deeper into the book of Judges and say, now who's the good guys and who's the bad guys here? I mean, these guys are messes. And that's the problem with saviors, little s, saviors, um, is they're broken themselves. For example, we love our political saviors. Every few years, whether it's in our state or in our city or, or in our nation, um, uh, political saviors come along. Let me just ask you a theoretical question. Have you ever voted for someone thinking that they were going to save us from our problems and been slightly disappointed with that person? Has that, is that like, like, like ever happened? Okay. Now, here's the good news. God is going to send a judge, capital J, whose story is not recorded in the book of Judges. But his story bookends the book of Judges and even has a thread going through the book of Judges. Uh, it goes, Joshua judges Ruth. And in Joshua, there's a woman by the name of Rahab. And, and then through, one of her descendants is through the book of Judges, goes through the tribe of Judah. And then on the other end of Judges is a woman by the name of Ruth. 
And through the lineage, the genealogy of Rahab through Judah to Ruth comes King David. And King David is going to clean up the mess that we see in Judges, but it's only going to be temporary. But through his lineage is going to come someone by the name of Jesus. And he is going to clean up this mess permanently. And all God's family said, amen to that. Now, that's why we honor him in the Lord's Supper. In just a few minutes, we're going to share the Lord's Supper. And what I want you to do during the Lord's Supper is I want you to pray about uh, unconquered territory in your life. I want you to pray about, Lord, show me what are the areas where I've had little pockets of disobedience. And, Lord, give me the, the courage to go after those areas. But also, we're going to honor Jesus and his death on the cross because by his death, he conquered it um, completely. Uh, that's what he did. And, and so everybody's welcome to share the Lord's Supper. You, don't, um, you just need to know that you're a follower of Jesus. Say, Glenn, how would I go about doing that? Well, if you look at the card that's in front of you there in the book rack, and it talks about three steps to following Jesus. And then a little suggested prayer. And if you've ever prayed that prayer in the past or if you'd like to pray it today, you are very, very welcome uh, to share the Lord's Supper and to honor him in that way. Now, one more point um, be, before we're done. And praise team, you're just going to have to wait. <laughs> you thought I was done? I did say Lord's Supper. But I didn't say, I didn't say, I didn't say the Lord's Supper. I didn't say it like that. Okay. That was the cue. Okay. Uh, I said it like nine times. I did. I did. I did. My bad. My bad. Okay. My bad. No, no. I want you to stay right where you are. I want you to stay right where you are. Okay. But don't use your cell phone or anything like that. Okay. While you're back there. Okay. Okay. Amnesia leads to apostasy. Judges 2 verse 7. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Things like the crossing of the Red Sea. Things like manna in the wilderness. Uh, things like, um, um, you know, the walls of Jericho coming down. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath, Harry's, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Let's hold it there for just a moment. Here's the generation that had personally experienced God. Next generation comes along, and they no longer know God. In one generation, we go from a generation that knocked down the walls of Jericho to one who doesn't know God at all. That's how fast it can happen. That's how fast it can happen. I was asked to speak at a conference later this month. And they gave me the title to what they wanted me to speak on. And it is an awesome title. I'm just going to use it again and again. Here's the title to what they asked me to speak on. How to be a multi-gen church with a next-gen bias. Now, yours are the ones. They, they didn't ask me because I have any ideas on this. It's because you've done the hard work of this. You're the ones that have gone through the change and are going through the changes to make that happen. How to be a multi-generational church, a church that ministers to multiple generations 
while always having a bias towards reaching the next generation. You say, well, Glenn, that doesn't sound fair. No, no, we will minister to all generations, but we will always have a bias to the next generation. Oh, Glenn, that's not fair. It has to be that way. It has to be that way. Because we do not want to end up as being a generation that experienced God, but does not pass it on to the next generation. Now, you all thought I was going to get through this entire message without showing you any pictures of our new grandchild. (laughs) And you guys were laying bets on it. I know. You had 10 to 1 odds. He'll do it. He'll do it. Pass the money back to the other person. You're going to lose in the last two minutes here, okay? Somebody's going to score a touchdown the last minute, and it's going to beat the point spread. I've never bet on a sporting event in my life, but I know the lingo. Okay, here we go. Uh, This is Felicity Lois Gunderson Schwartz. And uh, she was born in Washington, D.C. You can go on to the next two. Uh, She was born in Washington, D.C. On on Tuesday, she was born. There she is. And then on Wednesday, she was born on Tuesday. The next day on Wednesday, this is Levi Brave Holmstrom, Pastor Eric and Sarah's uh, little, little boy. And he was born on Wednesday. And this last picture right here, uh, I get tired just looking at that, at that picture. I, I, I get tired just looking at that. Now, we are passionate. We put the two babies up there. We are passionate about becoming a church that Felicity and Levi want to go to someday. Now, how many think these two should get married? How many think that would be a good idea? We're actually working out an Old Testament deal with the Holmstroms. Uh, We have offered them 20 camels and and 20 donkeys and a cow to be named at a later date. And... uh, they have countered with an offer of 20 sheep, 20 oxen, and a goat that we can claim off of waivers. That's what they have countered, and so we'll let you know how that turns out. Uh, but as we, as we um, share the Lord's Supper together, let's just open our hearts to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, show me, show me, Lord, show us. What are those unconquered areas that we need to conquer during this series on the book of Judges? Let's take a moment now and prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper.